Hello again, Siege fans. With this episode, we enter uncharted waters, or at least unpublished material. Today, we start Chapter 1 of Book 6. This is a preface of sorts to this audio version. As I mentioned before, I'd given up on the idea of there being a tight Hollywood ending to the Siege story. Real life doesn't have movie endings, after all. Even the big moments in a person's life, a graduation, getting married, a first child, landing that dream job, even though you might feel like you're seeing it in an ascending boom shot to include a landscape with a golden sunrise and the credits music fading in, there's still the next day, and then the next. So too with the seed story, really. Martin made it home at the end of book one, but then he and his household still had to deal with the outage. Even though the truckload of food arrived at the end of Book 3 and the people of Cheshire would make it through the winter, spring would still come. Then what? And so, even though Book 5 had its happy ending, I try not to be a gloomy Gus, the Simmons household and the people of New Hampshire would still have a lot to do if they were going to be ready to face another winter. They planted their crops, yeah, but then what? In Book 6, I took a wider view. Not just how would the Simmonses prepare for the inevitable winter, or even how the folks of Cheshire would prepare. What about the rest of the state? What are they doing? I know from reading other prepper fiction that there are people out there who imagine that a collapse scenario would usher in endless waves of violence and mayhem. Dog eat dog, rival gangs and groups all blasting away at each other, day after day with only the most ruthless surviving to lay claim to the ashes. I don't think that I'm a Pollyanna optimist, but I really don't think chaos and mayhem would necessarily be pervasive and perpetual. Oh, sure, there's bound to be some violence. Well, heck, we got that now. No reason it would stop just because the grid was down and the bank stopped working. I will admit, though, a dog-eat-dog -dog Mad Max world does make for a more gripping novel. But... I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist when it comes to humanity. For every heartless thug willing to kill for a can of beans, I like to think that there's a dozen or so people willing to work for a can of beans, and many of those willing to defend their cans of beans. I can see people helping each other, to whatever extent they can, but also eventually trying to rebuild a cooperative society. As much as the lone wolf scenario flatters the ego, a lone person can't thrive. Oh, sure, such rebuilding would be basic at first, like trading sessions among neighbors, or cooperative sharing, etc. Eventually, those efforts would expand beyond the neighbors and the neighborhood. Book six is a look at that rebuilding of society trying to expand. Ah, but that's enough of a preface. Let's get on with the story. The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Six The Summer of Wood and Iron. Chapter One Another Iron in the Fire. Martin pushed his armload of sapling poles through the branches of the pines that lined the narrow path to his new bean field. Once through, he paused for a long sigh. Setting up poles for all those bean plants to climb was momentarily intimidating. 
With another sigh, this one of resignation, he dropped his armload of sticks at the end of the rows. Chickadees in the hemlock branches seemed to scold him with harsh D-D-D calls. Oh, can't a guy rust for a second? D-D-D, chickadee-D-D, answered several little birds. Huh, guess not. Martin gathered up a half dozen of the slender poles in each hand. Don't know what your hurry is, he muttered under his breath. You don't eat beans. He knelt at the middle of the northernmost row. The young bean plants had two big sets of adult leaves. A slender tendril reached a foot above the plant, searching for something to climb. Martin pushed one pole into the ground near one plant and another near its neighbor. The two sticks leaned against each other. He tied them together to form an inverted V. He wanted to get the last three rows staked first. They were Robert's rows, compensation for the use of jasmine and his single-bottom plow to till the new field. As he pushed the last of his first batch of poles, the chickadees went silent. Martin straightened up and turned his head slightly to listen. The little birds made more noise when a predator approached, not less. This was different. He quietly lowered the pole in his hand to the ground and wrapped his fingers around the grip of the pistol in his holster. He pivoted slowly in his kneeling position to get a better look at the woods. He saw a shape moving in the shadows, but recognized the movement. It was Mara. With a slight sag of relief, he blew out the breath he was holding. He let go of the pistol grip and picked up his pole again. When he had the last V in place, he could hear the faint swish of pine needles on leather. Now you're early, he said without turning. As he stood and turned slowly to face her, he could see that she wore a pair of new buckskin pants. As he got a better look, he could see that there was only glistening tan skin above the waistband. Two small triangles of buckskin, held in place by a thin leather strap, were insufficient containment. He quickly dropped his eyes. Uh, <coughs> um, nice, uh, moccasins. Uh, did you make new ones? No. Oh, well, they, uh, look new. Must be taking really, really good care of, uh, uh, you know, Mara, I've got a lot of extra shirts that I don't need. Uh, I'd be happy to give you a couple of... No, no shirts. Cloth absorbs sweat. Animals can smell that. Oh, uh, I see. He turned toward his bean field. Well, the offer still stands. I'll just give them to you. Uh, nothing in exchange. I was out here setting up some stakes for the beans. Uh, what brings you down this way? Uh, we weren't supposed to meet up for two more days to swap a raccoon for a basket of corn. Need more time. Could be a few more days, she said. Well, no rush. Martin kept his eyes on the beans. Despite his urge to confirm what he thought he saw. Well, I'll keep the corn set aside. You know, I've got plenty of seeds I could give you. It's too late for corn, but you could plant things like uh, beets or beans or peas. No, I'm no good with gardens. Better at hunting. Huh, well, that you are, replied Martin. But are the raccoons getting scarce? They're out there, but there are people moving through the woods. Throws off the animals as patterns. Oh, uh, people? Martin perked up. He had started to turn to face her, but quickly turned back to the beans. Uh, do you think they're trouble? I don't think so, Mara said. 
I've watched them. They wander, grazing on plants, looking for water. Their wandering spooks my animals. Huh, said Martin. Well, thanks for the info. Uh, let's still meet here in two days anyhow. Uh, maybe you'll have your raccoon by then, after all. And even if you don't, I'll bring the corn. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, you'll get a coon eventually. Two days. With that, Mara let herself be absorbed into the forest. Martin allowed himself a half-turn to see that she was gone. He blew out a breath through pursed lips and finished setting up his climbing poles. It took some distraction effort to not leave memory's snapshot up on his mental screen. Mara's curves in scant summer attire caught him off guard. In all their prior meetings, she wore her coyote shawl. Upon a little reflection, those had been on cooler days. Perhaps she always wore little triangles beneath that fur. He had to shake his head again. That wasn't something he should be thinking about. Poles, he announced to the chickadees. That's it. I need to go cut some more poles. On a whim, and half curious if he might see some signs of the people Mara spoke of, he didn't return to the house via the path. Instead, he pushed into the woods at the opposite end of the bean field. The land sloped down to become the shallow valley that their little stream ran through. He walked slowly on a thick carpet of pine needles and damp leaves. The understory was sparse, affording a longer view. Had these wanderers come close to the house? He wished he had asked Mara where she saw them. He looked for footprints or any other sign in the sand and the mud around the stream. Nothing. Despite his stealthy steps and scanning into the woods, he still saw nothing. He knew his unconventional return path might cause alarm for Lucas, whose turn it was in the box. Martin found a fallen branch and whacked it on a tree trunk three times before proceeding up to the house. A young arm waved at him from the box, the observation blind beside the garage. Walking up the slope to the back of the house, Martin paused. His posture sagged. The firewood they had split the other day still lay in a pile. None of it had been stacked. The excavation for the root cellar was no further along than it had been the day before, or the day before that. Even though everyone agreed that a root cellar would be crucial to storing their harvest for winter, no one seemed to have the time to work on it. He half resolved to resume the digging himself, but he knew that he too had more pressing matters at hand. He saw Margaret on the patio. She was fussing with a large saucepan atop their stacked brick rocket stove. For a moment, he thought he would ask her if she had any time to dig at the root cellar. When their eyes met, she had that wide-eyed, exhausted look, like the gazelle that had just barely outrun the lion. He changed his mind on the question. Uh, can I help with something? he asked. Help me pour this pot. She let go of the handle. I'll hold the colander steady. Pour it slowly. Most of the pulp will stay in the pot. She pointed with her eyes to a wire colander perched on a metal bowl. He slowly poured the green water, leaning away to keep his face out of the steam. With a wooden spoon, he held back the dark green pulp. The pot dripped empty. Margaret sat herself on a nearby cinder block, blew out a long breath, and brushed the stray hairs away from her face. A hot summer day was a poor time to labor over boiling pots and open fires. This is my first batch of nettle rennet, she announced, tucking the loose strands of her hair back under her headscarf. I'm really hoping it works. 
The cows at the dairy have been producing well, well, too well in a way. I'm bringing home close to two gallons of milk a day. We can't drink it all. We've got no chilled storage any more. The stream's barely running this time of year. I've used up our calf rennet a couple of weeks ago, making those harder cheeses. She set the bowl of steaming green water to float in a larger bowl of cool water. All right. Martin sat on another cinder block. That's part of why we need that root cellar, so we can store them properly for winter. I know, she shook her head wearily. But that's a problem for months from now. This milk will go bad in an hour if I don't do something with it. I figured to try making rennet out of nettles. My book said it works, but I've never done it before. We've got plenty of nettles along the raspberry patch's wall. Uh, could you bring over those two milk jugs? I have them hanging in the rain barrel water. Coolest spot I could find. While Martin carried over the two plastic jugs, Margaret rinsed out a big pot and placed it on the gently smoking rocket stove. She carefully poured in the milk. They say nettle rennet doesn't keep. Gotta use it fresh. I'll just have to make little batches to go with each overstock of milk, I suppose. The book said cheese set by nettles will take longer to set, be softer, and you shouldn't store it beyond a couple of months. Uh, or what? Martin asked. I don't know. It gets bitter or funky taste or something. They never really say. But if this buys me even a month, I'll be happy. We can eat this newer cheese now and save our other cheeses to harden for winter. Right, stored in our root cellar, Martin added diplomatically. I know Carlos is on the patrol loop. Dustin is still at the town farm for two more days, working off our labor debt for their help clearing the bean field. Well, what about Andy? Oh, he's working on one of his special projects. Oh, now what? Martin had a weary tone. Well, what about Judy uh, and Anna? Margaret shook her head as she stirred the milk. Oh, the poor thing. Morning sickness is hitting her hard. She insisted on taking her turn at doing laundry, uh, but while she was hanging up the wash to dry, eh, well, she lost it. Oh? Martin sat up taller and peered toward the deck. Is that why the deck is all wet? Hmm. Margaret nodded as she added a few more sticks to the fire. Anna helped me rinse it off. Got some of it on the clean laundry, though. Anna took it back inside to wash. Oh, well, rats, Martin muttered. Huh? Martin winced. He was disappointed in himself that his first thought was the loss of a worker rather than sympathy for his daughter-in-law's distress. Uh, I mean, uh, sorry she's having a rough pregnancy. Oh. Say, I uh, ran into Mara while I was out staking some of the beans. Wasn't that supposed to be a couple of days from now? said Margaret, focused on the thermometer clipped to her pot. She promised you a raccoon in exchange for some corn? You know, we don't have that much corn left, Martin. True, but our sweet corn will be ready in a few weeks, and you're always eager to get more proteins. Well, anyhow... I'd like you to come with me to meet up with Mara uh, in a couple of days. Margaret's shoulders sagged as she looked up. Oh, but why? I've got a million things to do, or should be doing, instead of standing around in the woods waiting for her to show up. If she shows up, you know that woman has no sense of time. I know, but I think it would be best if you came. Margaret gave him a sideways glance that expected a very good reason for her to waste time. 
Why? Well, now that it's summer uh, and all, uh, she isn't um, wearing all that much. What? Margaret stopped stirring and leveled a stern gaze at him. I had no idea, offered Martin in his defense. She, she just showed up. Uh, like that. Look, you weren't happy that I didn't tell you about Trish and her red bra thing right away, so this time I'm... That was a week after the fact, Martin. She stiffened up and squinted at him. Why did you wait a week? For a moment, Martin could feel his jaw muscles tighten and his face get hot. He was triggering into argument mode. This time, however, he felt it coming and shut it down. He held his hands up in surrender. Sorry, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. We said we weren't going to talk about that anymore. Margaret slumped and let out a big sigh. Oh, you're right. Sorry, it's the stress. There's so much to get done in so little time. Summer will be over before we know it. Then the garden harvest, then the canning, then the apples. She shook her head slowly, as if silently rejecting options. You're right. It sounds like I need to be at any meetings with Mara if she's going to be... Wait a minute. Was she naked or something? Well, no, not naked entirely. She wore some buckskin pants, kind of like chaps. But I guess she didn't have much deer hide left for a top. She had thin straps like bootlaces and some little triangles of buckskin uh, about this big. Martin made a triangle out of his thumb and index fingers held against his other hand. Margaret rolled her eyes and muttered something about young women flaunting. Ah, then you're darned right I'll be at any such meetings. Oh, thanks, Kit Kat. Martin brushed some hair aside and kissed her on the forehead. You could bring that stack of mending that you've got on your sewing table. Uh, you're always saying how you don't have time for that. Make use of the wait time, right? I'm still missing my, uh, he stepped back out of arm's reach, my favorite black cargo pants. What? She swung a wide but not too serious slap at his legs, but he was out of range. I'm not fixing those any more. The patches have patches. Please, they're my favorite. Hey, you're not looking. I'm making some killer puppy dog eyes up here, but you're not even looking. That's why I am not looking. You'll just have to... Oh, this milk is almost up to temperature, said Margaret. I can't talk now. Gotta stir in the rennet. Uh, go cut your sticks, Martin. You can plead your puppy dog case later. Martin turned to go, muttering over his shoulder. Well, fine, I'll go. But you better bet I'm going to be practicing my puppy eyes for maximum heart-melting. As he rounded the corner of the house, a sudden waft of potent sewage smell took away his breath and caused him to stagger back a step. His eyes began to water. Between blinks, he could see Andy was hauling up a tall pole from the hole in the ground at the edge of the front garden. It was the septic tank's access hatch. Martin took a few steps to the left to allow the mild easterly breeze to envelop him. Fresh air never smelled so good. He wiped the residual tears from his eyes with his fingertips. Andy noticed the movement in his peripheral vision. He dumped black sludge from the bucket that he had raised then swished his gloved hands in a pail of soapy water. He lowered the painter's respirator from his face, raised the swim goggles to his forehead, and stepped closer to Martin. Uh, you're doing that today? Martin asked, 
backing up a step to keep some distance between himself and Andy's dark spattered apron. I, I said it would be good to do sometime, but I didn't mean today. Oh, sure, hey, your indefinite timeline was crystal clear, Mr. S. At least as crystal clear as a non-specific adverb can be, uh, I suppose. Yeah, but hey, uh, today qualifies, uh, technically, as a sometime. And it's the ideal day, you know. Steady breeze out of the east instead of our usual westerlies meant that the inevitable, uh, mm, fragrances would be carried over the driveway and out over the meadow instead of into the house. I figured you'd be all in favor of not stinking up the house. Uh, well, yes, but there's work to do on the root cellar and firewood to stack. Oh, comprendo. And as soon as I get maybe five or six more wheelbarrows of sludge out, uh, we could call that done enough and be on to other chores. Uh, my trusty bucket isn't as quick as a professional honey wagon could do it, <laughs> but a whole lot cheaper. Well, that is, if anyone was still doing honey wagons, and they probably aren't. Six more? How many wheelbarrows have you done already? Oh, that one there's my lucky number seven. Lucky? Yeah, well, sort of. I'm not sure a load of semi-liquid fragrance has much to do with luck. I plan to do 14 loads, you see. So number seven is my over-the-hump load. Yay, right? It helps, you know, with tough tasks that have no apparent reward to them, and are actually kind of revolting. To break them down into sections. I mean, one load is only like, oh, 7%. <laughs> Not all that celebrational, right? Nobody tosses confetti and blows little paper horns for 7%. But four loads? Well, that's over a quarter done. Seven is half. Oh, woohoo! Though I can't throw my imaginary confetti until it's actually dumped. Uh, dumped where? You're not just pouring that stuff out on the ground, are you? It'll all wash into... Oh, heck no, Mr. S. I am shocked and hurt that you would even think that I would ever do something so totally Exxon Valdez. Oh, uh, well, I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just teasing on your leg. I know you didn't mean nothing. No, no, I'm dumping this black gold into my humanure bin, Andy said proudly. Ever since Trevor moved out, and I gotta say, he and that Chandra made quite a cute couple. I loved how they'd twitter and sweet nothings to each other, thinking they were so soft-spoken that no one else could hear. Yeah, but they were louder than they realized, and it was hard not to smile at Trev being called Puff Muffin. <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but it sounds... Andy, Martin said with a scolding look. Oh, hey, sorry. As I was saying, uh, with Trev gone, it's just me supplying the, um, fuel for my humanure bin. Uh, not enough inputs, you know. Yeah, it was starting to cool off. Well, that's bad. But with this humongous federal grant-sized infusion of semi-solids, the bin should be cooking again. Martin could only sag in acquiescence. Trevor's departure was another of those less-than-compassionate moments where Martin was seeing people primarily as workers for his task list. Trevor had been a hard worker around the property and was sorely missed. When Chandra's nurse ethos compelled her to return to Manchester to help treat the typhus and cholera outbreaks, it was little surprise that Trevor wanted to go with her. Martin had been more focused on Trevor as labor than he was on Trevor as a person. Yeah, Martin felt like a jerk. Andy was right. The septic tank did need to be emptied, at least somewhat. Andy's humanure pile would be a valuable addition to the fertility of next year's garden. It just didn't get the root cellar dug for this year. Oh, hey, I'd like to keep chatting out here where the air is amazingly fresh. But old lucky number seven is calling me. Uh, can you hear it? Andy cupped his hand to his ear. 
Uh, yeah, I don't hear it either. Poetic metaphors must be ultrasonic. Uh, well, either way, I still gotta get to it. He pulled on the painting respirator back up over his nose and mouth, and the swim goggles down over his eyes. Talk to you later, Mr. S. Martin wanted to insert some parting nag about Andy working on the root cellar when he was done, but it felt petty. Andy was doing a disgusting but vital task that would keep the Simmons' septic system functional for another year. How could Martin complain about that? He sighed and headed for the shed to get a shovel. He would do at least a little digging by himself before cutting down more saplings to become bean poles. The distinctive clatter of Charles's truck rose above the gentle hiss of the wind in the pines. Figuring that the truck must have rounded the bend up the road, Martin walked toward the road to meet them. The battered white flatbed coasted to a stop. Nick waved from the back. Tyler leaned his head out of the driver's window to say something, but quickly withdrew. His face twisted in disgust. What is that? demanded Tyler. It smells like Manchester out here. His look of disgust only deepened. Well, Andy's clearing out our septic tank, Martin said in a short burst. Pull up on the other side of the driveway. Uh, the air should be better. As the truck crunched to a stop a second time, Charles got out of the truck and stepped over the trailer's tongue. He shook his head. Oh, phew, I sure didn't expect that. Martin forced a chuckle. Yeah, well, we shouldn't be doing that again until next year. As bad as it is, you guys might need to do that too. Don't want your septic system to fail you nowadays. Yeah, I guess not, said Charles. Yeah, maybe we can talk Andy into doing ours too. Martin smiled. Well, I'm not so sure he wants to make a career of that. Yeah, yeah, I suppose not. So, uh, down to business then, eh? Charles pulled a little blue and white cooler from among the motley collection of coolers in the trailer. Here's your dividend check. He held out the cooler. Martin took it and peered inside and then recoiled a bit. What is that? That's a monkfish, said Charles. Ugly as sin, ain't it? Gil gets them as bycatch now and then. Says they're delicious, uh, despite the looks. Um, thanks? Martin pushed around a couple of fifth-sized chunks of ice before replacing the cooler's lid. Well, I see Lloyd still has ice. Oh, yeah, that barn of his is still half full. Yeah, I gotta say, he's one crafty old codger. Who knew that he was cutting ice off his pond last winter? Now he's sitting on a frozen gold mine. We don't got all day to chew the fat, Tyler hollered back from the driver's window. Gotta get this load home. Ah, right, shouted Charles. Martin expected him to return to the truck. Instead, he reached over the truck's tailgate and pulled out a scruffy bicycle. Martin was trying to formulate a question about the bike. Was it a gift? Something they wanted repaired? Something they wanted to barter with? Charles pushed the bike ahead, stepped clear of the trailer, and patted the side of the truck. Tyler waved out the window as the truck and trailer clanked and rattled down the dirt road. Martin wanted to ask why Charles was still in his yard, but that seemed rude. Usually, Tyler and Charles just stopped by as they returned from their coastal trucking run to drop off Martin's modest dividend payment for helping construct the truck's gasifier. It was a small but recurring bit of food income. This time, however, Charles stayed behind. Um, what's with the bike? Martin asked. That's my wheels home, said Charles. I wanted to talk to you a bit, but I knew Tyler wouldn't want to wait. Martin could feel his face scrunch up in suspicion. Uh, talk about what? 
Charles flashed and held a grin of a used car salesman. Ah, uh, business? That only deepened Martin's suspicion. He could feel his posture sag and a weary parent's, oh, now what, expression drift onto his face. Now, now, don't get all defensive, said Charles, momentarily dropping his salesman's smile. This is a really good idea this time. Martin folded his arms across his chest. I've got a root cellar to dig. This'll only take a minute, I swear, said Charles. Now, undo your arms. Your body language is shouting no, no, no already, and I hadn't even started. That's not fair. Come on, come on, arms down. Martin relented with a sigh and let his arms go limp. Ah, that's better. Charles's salesman's smile returned. Okay, so, now hear me out before you say you don't have any time for new projects. He held his hands out near his hips, as if ready to fend off a pesky dog. Martin smiled slightly. He was becoming predictable, but it was true. He had no spare time. Okay, I'm listening. Right, so, Tyler and I have been talking. I mean, it's a long trip down 101 to the coast and back. We're always talking. Anyhow, we've been keeping records, you know, of our trips to and from. Yeah, there's no money involved, so it's harder to tell if you're coming out ahead or not. But we've been thinking that we're not doing all that well. well. What do you mean? Martin was now more curious than skeptical. Was his modest dividend of fish or a bag of Butch's sea salt in jeopardy? Well, we've been clearing barely enough, continued Charles. Yeah, we fill half the trailer with firewood and stack the coolers as high as we dare after loading them up with some of Lloyd's ice. More firewood and whatever else we think we can trade on the flatbed. Of course, the chips and the gasifier take up half of that. And, interrupted Martin, I just want to say thanks for letting Nick go along as your fireman. I know you guys could manage, just two of you, but letting Nick have a job, well, it means a lot to him. Charles dismissed the gratitude with a small wave. Ah, he works cheap. A cooler of fish per trip. He even chips up some of the wood. Yeah, besides, it gives Tyler and me more time to talk business while we drive. Which is what I want to talk about. Business. Yeah, we load up as much as we can and bring back as much as we can. Yeah, but we're not really ahead by all that much. Well, wood is bulky, Martin offered in sympathy. Coolers take up room, too. What else can you do? I'm glad you asked that, beamed Charles. Martin winced. He had just stepped into a salesman's snare. We need to do double or triple our carrying capacity per trip. We figure that old truck's got a lot more torque that we're not using pulling just that trailer. Martin tried to anticipate where Charles was going. Uh, so you want a bigger trailer? Oh, no, Charles said with melodrama. We're thinking bigger. We're thinking about three or four trailers, he held his arms out as if he had just presented the grand prize. Uh, why not just one bigger trailer? That'd be simpler. We're thinking a string of trailers, like a road train. Yeah, we can add trailers, modular-like, as needed. Easier to make turns, too. Uh, hey, now, now, you're crossing your arms again. Sorry, force of habit. So, am I to guess that you want me to come over and do some welding to rig up these trailers? Martin said it wearily. Well, yes and no, said Charles. Yes, for the little welding with Tin Man and your little welder. Mostly to rig up a frame for our bigger welder. But no on the trailers. They'll need a bigger stick welder. Much heavier steel, you see. That'll need a bigger generator, which in turn will need a bigger engine. And, uh, another gasifier. 
Well, that sounds like a huge amount of work, Charles. I told you that I don't have a lot of... Charles held up a hand to interrupt Martin's complaining. We know. You tell us every time we see you. Well, that's because every time I see you, I've got some other project in the works, and I still have my own work to do. Hey, we can't help it if we're keen, entre-prone, oh, heck, I'll never get that, businessmen, said Charles. Nope, we figure if you can help us get the bigger generator's frame made, we can do the rest. We can use the truck's gasifier to power the new engine while we make a new gasifier. We figure just to copy the sizes of the truck's unit, that ought to be plenty big enough. Martin let out a sigh. I know, I know, said Charles defensively. Look at it this way. Your dividend will be larger if we can haul more stuff on each trip. More fish, more salt. You said yourself that you could use more salt. Martin shook his head in resignation. Salt was his weak spot. Okay, okay, I can spare you a half a day. Hey, great, Charles clapped his hands together. Yeah, how about tomorrow? Come around, uh, ten? We'll supply the chips for ten, man. Uh, we'll see you then. With that, Charles kicked a leg over the seat of the bike, pushed off, and wobbled down the bumpy road. Martin stood for a moment, shaking his head. For the past several days, he had been nagging everyone about getting things done. Now he was about to be gone for a half a day, which would probably become a whole day doing something else. That was not good leadership. There you have the first chapter of Book 6. As I said in the epilogue to Book 5, my plan is to post a chapter every other week, so as to give myself time to write and hopefully get to the end of the book before I run out of weeks. I've set a rule for myself to write something every day. Sometimes it's easy to sit and type out a whole scene. Other times, it's a struggle. I'm also keenly aware that it's easier to find time to write now that there's snow on the ground, no gardens to tend, no need to guard chickens, etc. Come spring, yeah, free time might start getting a little scarce. In podcast news, some of you may have noticed episodes without any ads. I'm not sure why that's going on. The podcast is collecting far fewer impressions than before, so something must have changed in Podbean's ad insertion algorithm. Yet there's still some impressions happening, so some episodes are getting ads. I'm not lamenting the missing ads all that much, though. As a revenue source, it's been kind of minimal. I just got the first payment from Podbean. $18.59. That from ads playing since mid-August until now. Maybe that scales up to a significant income on a high-volume podcast. But on a low-volume show like The Siege Stories, obviously not. Six months of ad revenue could buy me a combo meal at McDonald's. I will note that the podcast has topped 80,000 downloads as of this week. <laughs> Woohoo, huh? Thanks to all of you who've hung in with me all this way. Thanks to those of you who bought me coffees. You know who you are. And a hearty welcome to Melvin, the newest member of the Siege Club, who also happens to live in New Hampshire. And a special shout-out to Ian for the very nice email he sent me. And do keep in mind, all of you, that any of you can send me an email at mick at mick-roland.com. I'd love to hear from you.
Unlike the ads, you all have been the true supporters of this podcast. I couldn't do it without you. Thanks for listening.